Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by David Westlake. David is the CEO of the UK branch of International Justice Mission, a global organisation partnering with local justice systems to end violence against and exploitation of people living in poverty. David, welcome. It's great to have you with us on the programme today. Hi, it's great to be here. Likewise, and it's great to uh, to have you on as well. Now, David, um, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about um, the topic of leadership. But what does that word leader actually mean to you? I think the, the best leaders are those who enable other people to achieve extraordinary things. And the really greatest leaders are those who enable others to achieve extraordinary things and think they did it themselves. That's um, really interesting. So um, would you have any examples perhaps of the good leaders that you've maybe seen throughout your lifetime who would maybe fit into that category? Yeah, sure. So for me, I, I go I go way back to when I was just starting out. And um, like, I guess all of us, when we're just starting out, I've made a horrendous mistake. And I thought this was going to be curtains for me in that role with that organization at the time. And I'd worked through um, the team leader and, and everything. And I was basically working my way up to the guy who led that organization. And I had a meeting with him and I came um, to see him and he looked up and the first thing he said to me was, David, I've heard all about this. You must feel terrible. And what he managed to convey in that was that he wasn't there to beat me up. He first of all empath- empathized. And secondly, he was going to help me find a way through this. And that's actually what he did. It wasn't without pain and difficulty, but that's what he did. And I think at that moment, I could have been utterly crushed and set back years probably. Um, but in actual fact, that became the mo- one of the most powerful learning moments for me and gave me confidence in uh, what I could do because he showed confidence in me. And I think for me, all the way through, there's been people at key moments who have just taken extraordinary risks on me, who've trusted me and um, not just trusted me to do a job, but trusted me with their reputation, trusted me with um, their dream and their goal and their KPI. And that really is quite extraordinary. It certainly sounds it. And um, trust, um, as you mentioned there, is one of the key elements of being a leader, isn't it? You have to be able to surround yourself with people that you trust and allow those people to also be self-motivated, be independent, and in a sense, mm. take on roles of leadership themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things about being a leader is to be able to spot those people who you can take that leap of faith. I think it always is a little bit of a leap of faith, but you spot those people you can take a leap of faith with. Absolutely. And I did um, like earlier how you you touched on uh, this idea of leadership being a learning process as well, David, because there are some people who might think that leaders are born with certain innate qualities. And to an extent, that might be true. They may have a certain hunger, a certain self-motivation, a certain drive, but they're not going to be ready-made to go into a leadership role and get every decision right without making any mistakes, are they? There's always going to be a learning process of some kind there. Uh, absolutely. So one of the things I look for in someone is, um, are they the kind of person who thinks they could do it better, whatever it is? And of course, um, 
to some folks that comes over as arrogant. Um, but I'm looking for that leadership spark, which says, do you know what? I think I could do this better. I think we could run this thing better. I think we could come up with a better idea. I think that raw energy is often what opens the door to leadership. And you can then learn a load of stuff if you're, if you're teachable. You can learn about how to take people with you. You can learn about good planning. You can learn about the balance between um, risk-taking and, um, and, and keeping things safe for people and, and all, those other, all those other skills that we all know about. Um, but that kind of raw material and the teachability, I think, is what makes the beginnings of a great leader. Absolutely. There's there's something that has to be there from the beginning, a vision, a drive, um, as we say. But there are things that you can certainly pick up and uh, develop throughout life. Um, we talked a little bit um, earlier on, David, about some um, influences um, as well. Um, that's also quite important, isn't it, as part of that journey, having um, influences, people who can give people advice and help people learn those um, qualities, as it were, that they need to develop to become good leaders themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think that ever that ever um, ends. So, um, so I'm in my 50s and, um, and I've uh, just in the last few months joined a new learning community of about um, eight of us um, sharing uh, some, of, some of the pain and some of the joys but just some of the reality of our leadership settings and suddenly you kind of think, wow, someone, that person over there, they've got an amazing insight that's just right for me today and you, and, you, and you share together. And I think though being part of those learning communities is vital. It certainly is. And um, when we talk again about um, influences, people in communities like that, for example, people's colleagues, um, people who've um, been in charge of certain individuals throughout um, their development and their career, these are the people who um, influence the leaders of tomorrow, aren't they? But when we think of leaders, um, we instantly seem to think of people who are in the public eye, don't we? We think of politicians, we think of sports personalities, Mm. we think of celebrities. But in a business context, um, these people who are great leaders aren't necessarily in the public eye. Um, with that in mind, and this idea that they can sort of go under the radar a little bit in that sense, do you think that good leadership is really championed and celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? I, I think um, I think you make a really important point, which is we often have this slightly skewed view of what a great leader is. If, mm. I, if I get back to the very first thing I said, which is which is for me, great leadership is enabling other people to do extraordinary things, then actually we have unsung, awesome leaders all over our country and all over our organizations operating at all kinds of different levels. We often substitute that kind of leadership empowering process for cheaper things like celebrity or being able to wow on a platform. And those skills are important. You know, it's important to be able to present. It's important to be able to communicate. But actually, what is, I think, the game changer is when you can work with some different people and enable them to do extraordinary things. It is, absolutely. And um, I think in enabling people to do that, um, a leader must take on a a certain responsibility to instill a certain culture and a certain positivity, mustn't they, to allow the people around Mm. them to flourish. It's all well and good, of course, surrounding yourself with people who have um, positive qualities and will also get the best out of the leader. But also the leader has to have a certain culture, a certain procedure in place where they can also flourish themselves. Yeah, which is why I think that commitment to lifelong learning, that commitment to being with other people who are a bit further ahead of you or other people who just got um, different experiences and staying, I guess, open to being corrected, open to being trained, open to being mentored 
no matter how far down the road you are yourself. Absolutely. I think it's important to have that recognition that no one leader is ever really the finished product, as it were. Um, Considering all that we've discussed uh, so far, David, um, if you were to give advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role, what might you tell them? (laughs) I would say um, the, the number one thing would be find some allies, find some people who you look up to, find some people who will cheer you on. Um, and they're, they're different roles, but if you can get a team of people around you, some of whom will call you up, some of whom will just process with you and catch you when you fall, then that would be invaluable. It certainly is invaluable because I, th- I think people do need a pat on the back, as it were, sometimes and to know that they're doing things well. Because if we go back to this idea of leaders being people in the uh, the public eye, those people are very much there to be shot at, aren't they? And um, we see um, yeah. a lot um, with the approach that um, the government especially has taken with COVID-19. There are people who, of course, are supportive of that approach, but there's also a lot of widespread criticism, isn't there? So leaders often are criticised far more than they're praised. And that's also something to consider, isn't it? It is. Um, someone said to me a couple of months ago, the leaders need to have soft hearts and hard skins. And I think that, that uh, I think there's some truth in that. Um, and I was, I was talking with actually a friend who leads another organization uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they were saying it always shocks them how slow people are to uh, show appreciation to the leader and how quick they are to criticize the leader for almost anything. And I think that's just the territory and you have to be ready for it. Absolutely. Now, um, I'm conscious of um, running out of time, uh, David, but before we do go about wrapping things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next year is going to hold for <laughs> yourself, for IJM, um, and also what you hope to achieve in that time, particularly beyond the uh, the COVID-19 saga. Yeah, I know it's really hard to look beyond the COVID-19 saga, isn't it? My hope, mm. my hope is that we will have been able not just to keep the team together and to survive, but we will have thrived. We'll have found new ways of relating to our constituency, new ways of um, communicating as a team. We'll have come up with creative ideas that will lead us into a stronger positioning for the future than we've had even over the last few years. That's my hope for the next 12 months. Absolutely. And, um, there are, there are positives to be taken from this, aren't there? I mean, it will present opportunities, even though it is a challenging and uncertain time. And organisations, businesses, um, hopefully they'll be in a position to really hit the ground running and take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hope um, that we start seeing that light at the end of the tunnel and that upward trajectory very much sooner rather than later. Um, I have to say, um, David, it's been a really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the other programme today. And I think it would also be really beneficial if we perhaps revisit this in a few months' time to look at this retrospectively and see how those hopes have been borne out. Thank you so much for coming on uh, for the benefit of the listeners. It's been great to be with you. Likewise, really enjoyed it, David. Uh, Coming up next on the programme is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, I hope you enjoy listening to the interview just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew himself, and that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public 
and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... Uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because 
that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, Yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, Well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors, and. Um, yeah, it w- it's just an extraordinary thing, and uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trep Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm-hmm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually 
the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and you know if and when that happens that that should be a problem for a leadership and if it isn't a problem then you're not doing your but job absolutely properly. um and w- with all that in mind actually uh and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question but what advice would you give to others in a similar position leading a team um being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because... They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And 
were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, 
um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. a a very inclusive, if you're thinking about, think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what, what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing, not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing uh, wearing red. So what what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot Uh, of them (laughs) wear red trousers (laughs) anyway, I think. But um, (laughs) no, absolutely. They they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in, 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I'm very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.